you will start making your way back to your seats. And as you head back, I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3. To Hebrews chapter 3. Again, it's good to see you all. If you're visiting with us, my name's uh, Michael Matala. I'm privileged to serve as the, the lead pastor here at Newbreed Church. And uh, we are in the last sermon this morning in a very short series that we've been going through on this idea of Sabbath, of Sabbath rest. As most of you are aware, the church has been very kind. And so this is actually going to be my last week at Newbreed for about two months um, as I prepare to enter this time of sabbatical <clears throat> where... I'm going to kind of take a step back. You have three other pastors who are going to be walking with you. Uh, but, but this series has been more for my own soul to kind of prep me as I'm entering in to this, ser- this, this season of Sabbath, uh, specifically a, a sabbatical, uh, kind of away from the church. But I wanted to use this time to encourage you about this idea of Sabbath rest, a pattern that should be in each and every one of our lives. And so over the past couple of weeks, we've been answering some questions. We began and answered the question, why do we need rest? And then last week, we looked at this idea of where do we find rest? And this morning, I want us to answer this question, how do we enter rest? How do we enter rest? And so we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 3 through chapter 4, verse 11. But I just want to read into your hearing this morning, Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 7 and reading through verse 11. So I want to invite you to stand out of reverence for God's Word. Hebrews chapter 3, beginning there in verse 7. The author says this, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me, tried me, and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked to anger with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. So I swore in my anger, they will not enter my rest. Again, I want to answer the question, how do we enter rest? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the invitation that you have given for us to come into rest. God, I pray that you will give me physical and spiritual strength to preach your word to your people, for we are ready to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> How do we enter rest? I, I remember a few years back, my family and I, were, we were getting away for a couple weeks. We were going to leave here. We were going to spend two weeks in Minnesota. We were going to spend a week in the city, in Minneapolis, and then we were going to head a few hours north uh, up to a cabin on a lake and spend the second week there. And I, as is not uncommon for me, part of the reason I'm taking a sabbatical, I had a lot, a lot going on in my life as we were preparing to leave. And so as we're going, I, I already had this mental list of things that I would need to get accomplished even while I was on vacation. I had a list of things for work, a list of things for new breed, for church, even just personal things that needed to get done. I had a list going in my mind. So though this was meant to be a time of rest and enjoyment, I found myself after the first week, if I'm honest, even more exhausted and stressed than we had, we had initially left 
for the trip, but I didn't know that at the time. Uh, I, I can look back now and see it, but in the moment I didn't know it, but apparently it was showing. And my wife noticed. And so we, we'd finished our first week. We'd been in the city for a week. We were heading up to the cabin. And it's, it's a beautiful place on a lake. I mean, it's, it's perfect for relaxation, right? No highways around. You barely hear any noise. There are nature and, and a lake that's not crowded. And, and it's just, it's easy to reflect. And so as we're driving up there from the city, my wife says to me, she said it very quietly because the kids were asleep in the back seat. And when kids are asleep in the car when you're driving, you don't wake them up. That's the rule. But she said very quietly to me, she reached over, put her hand on my shoulder and said, I want you to try and rest this week while we're up here. Now, I'll be honest, it confused me a little bit when she said that, because in my mind, I'm thinking, well, I'm on vacation. That's what you do. Vacation equals rest. It equals relaxation. I'm on vacation. I've changed my location. I've got away. It's automatically restful. That's what I was thinking. And so, so I say a version of that to my wife. I say, well, thank you. I am resting. I'm on vacation. And she, being the amazing and intuitive wife that she is, said, no, no. You are physically here, but mentally you're a thousand different places. And I can see how not rested you are. I really tried to take that to heart that week because she was right. My brain was still here at Newbreed. It was with work stuff. It was, it was with things that needed to get done. I was a thousand different places. And my wife was right that I wasn't here. Now, she may not, not, not have known it at the time, but as I reflect back on it, I'm keenly aware that my wife was preaching to me in that moment. Because you see, what my wife was trying to get me to recognize the truth that I need you to get this morning is this, that we enter rest, not necessarily by going to a specific location and not necessarily through a specific activity. We enter Sabbath rest with a specific posture. That posture is a posture of faith. We enter into Sabbath rest with a posture of Faith. So let me, let me try to show you that this morning. Our text this morning in Hebrews 3 and 4 comes in the midst of a book that's written to believers who are struggling. We don't know exactly who wrote the book of Hebrews. There are different opinions on who wrote the, bo- the book. I think it was Apollos. I'm probably right, so there's that. But we, we don't know who, who wrote the book. But it's written to Christians who are struggling. They're in the midst of of persecution and trial and hardship, and they are at a place that many followers of Jesus have come to in their lives. When everything seems to be stacked against them, they're asking the question, is this really worth it? Is it worth it? And the author is trying to encourage them to endure and to hold on to their faith. And there's one reason he gives, one reason why they should endure, one reason they should hold on. It's a simple message that resonates throughout the book of Hebrews. Jesus is better. He's better. Jesus is better. He's a better prophet. He's better than the angels. He is a better Moses. Jesus is better than the law. Jesus is a better high priest. The message over and over is that Jesus is better. That's actually how the text begins in chapter 3, three verses 1 through, through 6. He says, therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and the high priest of our confession. He was faithful to the one who appointed him. Just as Moses was in all God's household, 
For Jesus is considered worthy of more glory than Moses, just as the builder has more honor than the house. Not every house is built by someone, but the one who built everything is God. Moses was faithful as a servant in God's household as a testimony to what would be said in the future. But Christ was faithful as a son over his household. And we are that household if we hold to our confidence and the hope in which we boast. And so the question is, what is that confidence? What is that hope? It's the message the author is trying to get them to see that Jesus is better. I'm just going to tell you, church, this morning, we're going to dive right in. Unless you come to believe that Jesus is better, you will never enter the rest that is available to you. Unless you believe that Jesus is better. Unless you believe that Jesus is better than that relationship with the person you want but you don't have yet. Unless you believe that Jesus is better than that promotion that you are breaking your back at work to get. Unless you believe that Jesus is better than your marriage and your family. Unless you believe that Jesus is better than that degree that you are striving for. And I know this for some of us. This might be the only thing you hear this morning. I hope you hear more because i got a lot more to say. It's my last week for two months. All right, Buckle up. But if this is all you get... I'm satisfied because some of us who have walked with Jesus for a minute just need to get back to the place where we truly believe Jesus is better. He's better than your theological education. He's better than all of your service. He's better than the ministries you're involved in. Jesus is better than all of that. He's better than the earthly accolades. He's better than an overflowing bank account. He's better than the ease and comfort you can get from things of this world. He is better. And Sabbath rest is built on a foundation of faith that believes and declares with everything in us that Jesus is better. And again, this rest that we've been talking about, it is a Sabbath rest that can only be entered into with that posture of faith, that Jesus is better. And the author in our text wants us to see this truth, but he begins to show it to us in a very painful way. And he begins to look at the failure of Israel. I don't, I don't necessarily have points, but if you want a point, this would be the warning. He offers a warning by looking at the failure of, of Israel. And in verse 7, in Hebrews 3 verse 7, he begins to quote from Psalm chapter 95. He says, Therefore... As the Holy Spirit says, and here's Psalm 95, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, when your ancestors tested me, they tried me, and they saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked to anger with that generation and said, They always go astray in their hearts, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in their anger, they will not enter my Rest, But then jump down to verse 16. We get a little bit more of an explanation as to what he's talking about. For who heard and rebelled? Wasn't it all who came out of Egypt under Moses? With whom was God angry for 40 years? Wasn't it with those who sinned, whose body fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were unable, here it is, they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So what the author of Hebrews is doing here, right, he's going back in time. He's reminding them of the pinnacle of deliverance in the Old Testament. 
When God delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt and where He leads them to, to the, the land that's promised to Abraham and his descendants, a land that is known as a land of rest. You, you know the story. Israel had been slaves in Egypt for over 400 years. 400 years. And then God raises up Moses, a man who was born an Israelite but raised in Pharaoh's court. And God calls him to be the one who leads the people as God delivers them. It's not an easy story. God called him, but it didn't mean everything just automatically fell into place because Pharaoh didn't want to let them go. So God showed off his strength by sending plagues. You remember that? There's, there's nine of them up on the front end, but then you get to the 10th plague, the final plague, the angel of death. The only way you could be spared was by spreading the blood of a spotless lamb on your doorpost. Angel of death sweeps through. Pharaoh's own son dies. Pharaoh's frustrated. He's broken. So he says, you can go. And then God leads the people. Right? God doesn't just stop with the deliverance. He leads the people. It's a cloud by day and fire by night. But then Pharaoh, after some time, has a change of heart. So he, with the Egyptian army, he goes after them. Moses and the people have an army behind them. They have a Red Sea in front of them. And once again, God shows his power to sustain them and deliver them. He parts the Red Sea. The people walk across on dry land. Then God takes it a step further. As the army attempts to pass through the sea, God closes the sea on them and they drown. I'm giving you a history lesson. I know. Bear with me. Then they go to Sinai. They get the law. They receive the law. And and then you come to the book of Numbers. And the book of Numbers recounts for us their journey to the promised land. But something interesting begins to happen in Numbers chapter 11. You see, in Numbers chapter 11, the people begin to complain. And for the next 10 chapters... You watch as Israel whines and grumbles about their condition. And they actually begin to ask the question, do you think we should just go back to slavery? They're continuously disobedient. They continuously fail to trust in God, even though God has done so much. But even Moses gets in on the disobedience because in Numbers chapter 20, Moses is disobedient. He's disobedient. The people are complaining that they don't have water. They're in the wilderness. God, did you bring us out here to just, to just die of thirst in the wilderness? And so God tells Moses, he says, Moses, I got this. Take your staff. Take your brother. Go and speak to a rock. And that rock will produce water. Now, I don't know if you know this, but rocks don't naturally produce water. It's once again God saying, I didn't leave you out here to leave you. I've got you, but Moses, Moses gets frustrated, not with God, with the people. He starts yelling at them. And instead of speaking to the rock, he strikes the rock with a stick. You know what happens? Water comes out because God is that faithful. But then listen to what God says to Moses in Numbers 20, verse 12. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust me to demonstrate my holiness in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring the assembly into the land I have given them. In other words, because you hit a rock, you will not enter my rest. It's almost as if disobedience is kind of a big deal. The text goes on in Numbers 20, 13 to say, these are the waters of Meribah where the Israelites quarreled with the Lord and he demonstrated his holiness to them. And so as a result of Israel's continued disobedience, as a result of their unbelief, They wander in the wilderness for 40 years. 
with many dying in the wilderness, failing to enter rest. Now I need to lean in a little bit, a little bit here because Hebrews 3 verses 18 and 19 is trying to tell us something. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were unable to enter rest because of unbelief. Now the question that I have is this. The question that I had to wrestle with is this. How does a people who have seen God work in such incredible ways, how does a people who have experienced the supernatural deliverance of God continue to disobey and fail to believe? Now let me just pause. I'm not sure I'm only talking about Israel. Why is it that we as Christians who have seen God work in incredible ways, who have experienced, because if you are a Christian, you have experienced the supernatural deliverance of God. Why is it that we fail to be obedient? Why is it that we fail to believe and ultimately fail to experience the rest that Jesus offers? Well, here's the best I got for you this morning. Maybe we can learn something from, Il- from Israel in the wilderness. Maybe we need a fuller understanding of the sovereignty of God. Here's what I mean. God's not just in charge when you have everything together in your life. God's not just Lord when you can see the horizon and you know what's coming. God is still Lord when everything in your life is a mess. God is still in charge when you have no idea what's going to happen and you have no way of figuring it out. I'm a, I'm, we, we struggle on this morning, so I'm going to preach it like I feel it for a minute, okay? You and I have to develop a deeper dependence on God that declares he is not just worth following when everything in my life is going well. He's worth following when the bottom falls out. Because what I need you to understand this morning is that God is always on his throne. The same God that leads you out of some stuff is the same God who will intentionally lead you into some stuff. The same God that delivers from slavery is the same God who led them into the wilderness. And for some of us, this is hard because we often only think God is glorious in the deliverance. But can I tell you this morning that God is also glorious in the wilderness too. And God is still on his throne. And you don't have to say amen because I brought my own witnesses with me this morning, okay? Take Joseph. Take Joseph, a man who is trying to be faithful to the call that God had placed on his life. And what happens to him? His brothers throw him into slavery because he got a nice Gucci coat. And they're jealous of him. And they throw him into slavery. And God is with him in the wilderness. But it doesn't stop there because then he tries to continue to be faithful to God and he ends up getting accused of a sexual assault that he didn't commit and he gets thrown in jail and still God is good in the wilderness. And all of this wilderness was leading Joseph to the place where he would be the deliverer of those who had persecuted him. And in all of that, he looks back and says, what they meant for evil, God meant for good. Why? Because the same God that leads you out of some stuff will lead you into some stuff. I got another one. You don't have to say amen. Look at Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 1. The, the prophet Samuel's mama before she was a mama. Ali and I were talking about her last night. That's how it made it into the sermon. You remember her story, don't you? She was a barren woman. But it gets even harder. The reason she was barren. You can't blame it on the fall. You can't blame it on a broken world. I like how Aaliyah said it last night in the car. God tells on himself. Because 1 Samuel 1.6, the Lord had closed her womb. 
This wasn't the fall. This wasn't sin. This wasn't a broken world. It was God leading her into a wilderness. And Hannah had two options. She could run from the Lord in disobedience and disbelief, or she could rest in the Lord through faith and trust. And by God's grace, she runs to the Lord. It's because of her rest in the Lord and faith in his power that she finds herself at the Lord's house on her knees crying out to God. Even the priest doesn't get it. He thinks she's drunk. You ever prayed so hard somebody thought you were drunk? She is pressing into the Lord. But what's so amazing is in the wilderness, Hannah introduces us to a name of God that we've never heard before. Because for the first time in Scripture, he's called Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. I like how the NIV translates it. He's the Lord Almighty. He ain't never been called that before. We get introduced to the God who is almighty in the wilderness, not in deliverance. It is in Hannah's wilderness, a wilderness that God himself has led her into, where we are introduced to him as the Lord Almighty, not the Lord who is mighty some of the time, not the Lord who is mighty only in deliverance, but the Lord Almighty. And what I'm trying to tell you is God is not just ruling in your life when everything is going well. God is also ruling when the bottom falls out. And sometimes the bottom is falling out because he's the one who swiped it away. And if God is still on his throne, even in that, even when everything seems to be spinning out of control, the best we got is to say, but I trust you. And I'm going to find rest in you. And the author of Hebrews, he's trying to make it plain for us. He's trying to warn us that Israel failed to enter rest because of disobedience and unbelief. But the author of Hebrews doesn't just want to warn you. He also wants to encourage you. Look at what he says there, beginning in verses 12 through 15. He says, watch out, brothers and sisters, so that there won't be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. So he's saying, look, what happened to Israel can happen to you. And so watch out. Pay attention. He says, encourage each other daily while it is still called today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception for we we have become participants in Christ if we hold firmly until the end the reality and we had at the start as it is said today if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts as in rebellion and I love this he's encouraging us to enter rest how is he doing it well, he's encouraging us to watch out for one another. Did you catch that? You, you know, in the original language, that watch out, brothers and sisters, that's not, that's not written in the singular. It's plural. He's talking to the collective group. Hey, you all, watch out for you all. Take care of each other, brothers and sisters. He isn't speaking to just the individual. He's speaking to the collective body. You know what that means? That my Sabbath rest it's not just my issue, it's your issue too. And your Sabbath rest is not just your issue, it's my issue too. We, you see, we need, to, we need to fight for one another and help one another enter into rest. We should be encouraging one another while it is still called today so that no one is deceived by sin. You know, I got to experience this firsthand and I can tell you what a blessing it is. As I mentioned just a moment ago, this is, this is my last Sunday for a couple, couple months. So I'm taking a sabbatical. But I need you to know, the sabbatical wasn't my idea. 
I mean, we had talked about it. It had got tossed around, but it wasn't my idea. It was two brothers in the church who will remain nameless, Lance and Jesse, who, <laughs> who saw me doing the very thing that I'm warning you not to do and trying to be Jesus in the life of this church. They saw me trying to hold everything together to be everywhere, to do everything, and they were watching me break. And so Jesse went to Lance late one evening and said, we have got to help this brother rest. And Lance showed up at my door at 10.30 at night and said, brother, you have to rest, and we are going to make it happen. They fought for me because it wasn't just my issue to fight for my Sabbath rest. It was theirs, too. And what I'm trying to tell you is that we need one another in this. Our lives can get crazy, can't they? Like some of us who are parents with young kids, it can get crazy. Sometimes rest is hard because you have these little ones. How can we fight for one another? Maybe I need to come take your little ones for a day and let you rest in the Lord. To press in, to fight for you as you fight for me. I have experienced what it feels like to have brothers watching out and encouraging me not to be hardened by sin. And we need one another as we fight to cultivate lives marked by Sabbath rest because all of us can fall into the temptation of thinking that we have to take care of this all on our own. Let's be honest, that's the reason we don't enter rest. We talked about a couple weeks ago, we were talking about a literal Sabbath rest, a 24-hour period where we stop work, we enjoy rest, we delight in what God has given us, and we contemplate God. We, we, we reflect on Him. That is something that we have to cultivate because the Bible commands us to do it. And one of the main reasons we don't do that is because we think that if we stop, everything in life will fall apart. Can I tell you something? If you stop and everything in your life falls apart, then your life was never built on Jesus in the first place. Because he is the one who holds this together. He is the glue. And if it depends on us, we've gotten something terribly wrong in our lives. And maybe we need to stop and let some things fall apart so we can figure out the things we need to lay at the feet of Jesus and say, carry this for me. Because I've been depending on myself and not depending on you. And every one of us, if we are honest, are tempted to play the role of Jesus in our own lives. I, as your pastor, am tempted. Just vulnerability, right? Some of you are visiting. Sorry, it's what you get. Like, I am tempted every day to try to be Jesus in this church. I am. I'm tempted to hold it all together and feel like if I don't do this, everybody's going to leave. Nobody's going to be happy. They're going to go to other churches. We're not going to have a budget. We, I got to figure out buildings. I, and I am tempted to be Jesus. And part of the reason I'm entering the season is because other pastors of this church said, you're not Jesus. And I needed to hear that. Like, you don't hold this together. And if I am holding it together, then let's just close the door because this is a fickle church. I'm weak, but Jesus is not. See, when it comes to our rest, one of the ways we can be disobedient and fail to believe is by thinking that we have to keep going all the time, that we have to play God. We hold it all together. But I want to remind you, again, what we talked about a couple weeks ago, this idea of Sabbath rest. It's not just for pastors. It is a, it's not just a recommendation. It is a command given to us by God for our good and for His glory. I and mean, we talked about it somewhat jokingly a couple weeks ago. Like, there are ten commandments. They're, you know, the big ten, right? Of all the things God could have said, Number four is rest. 
Honor the Sabbath day. Rest. Why? Because the Lord rested from his work. That's a good thing I didn't read the Bible. That would not have been in my top ten. But it's number four. And what that means is that our failure to enter into intentional days of Sabbath rest, it's disobedience. It's the very thing the author of Hebrews is pushing us away from. And we have to fight for it. And we have to fight for it with our brothers and sisters. I said it a couple weeks ago. I'll say it again. Sabbath rest, this very well may mean that we have to be willing to disrupt entire flow, the entire flow of our lives because we believe what God commands is for our good. But I'll be honest with you this morning. Fighting to help our brothers and sisters enter Sabbath rest might also mean being willing to disrupt the entire flow of your life because you believe what God commands is for their good and his glory. Right? Like some of us just have built our lives so there is no rest. And I'm going to put it as delicately as I can. That's disobedience and sin. It's not just bad practice. It's sin. And it's not what's best for us. All right, let me press on and bring this home. Not only does this author provide a warning, and not only does he encourage us or exhort us, but he also wants to offer some hope. And look at what he says in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, therefore, since the promise of rest still remains, let us beware that none of you be found to have fallen short. The author wants us to understand that rest is still available today. It's interesting when you read commentaries on this passage because there's a lot of disagreement about what this rest is. Some scholars have have argued that, well, it's just talking about eschatological rest, right? It's just talking about the rest that we get in the life to come. That's the rest that the author of Hebrews is talking about. And then you've got some who are saying, no, I think this is talking more about this idea of Sabbath rest that we build in to the practices of our lives. And there's some arguments made for that. But I think the most helpful way to understand it, I think the reason there's ambiguity in the text and the author presents evidence that you could pull from either one of these is because he's talking about both. Because in verse 4, he talks about the day of rest that we're commanded to take here and now. He says, for somewhere, he has spoken about the seventh day in this way. And on the seventh day, God rested from all his work. That's in Exodus. That's in Deuteronomy. That is, that is where God commands us to take a Sabbath day of rest here and now because God has rested. So he's talking about the here and now. But then in verse 8, he's talking about that future rest. He says, for if... Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. And so what he's doing is he's looking back at when Joshua leads them into the promised land and says that that's not actually the pinnacle of rest. That's actually a picture of a better rest to come because we know that often in the Old Testament, what we see are physical pictures of spiritual realities. And the promised land is a physical picture of eternal, a a spiritual eternal end, right? It is a picture of the glory that is to come when God wipes away every tear, every heartache where there is no more sin, no more death, no more curse, where a Sabbath day of rest is no longer needed because Everything we do, even work, because there will still be work in heaven, will have toil and hardship removed and everything will be a delight. Everything will be Sabbath. And what the author, I believe, is trying to communicate, what he wants us to see is that Sabbath rest is both a here and now and a then thing. It's, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's, it, it's finality is in glory when we get to rest with God for all eternity, but there's, 
There's evidences of that rest here and now as we partake in Sabbath. Rest, it's a foretaste for us of what eternity will be like. And some of us, it would do our souls well and help us fix our eyes on glory if we actually entered into a foretaste of glory that God has given for us here and now. Like, I'm excited to get to heaven. And you catch a glimpse of that in Sabbath rest. And that that can push you to, to walk by faith and not by sight. To walk with eyes fixed on eternity. But it requires you entering into that here and now. See, the author wants us to be reminded that this world is not our home. That Christ is on his throne. And if he is on his throne, we can look forward to the world that is to come. But we can also rest in the here and now. Why? Because if God rested, we can rest. God rested on the seventh day and the purpose was to delight and to enjoy in his creation. If he invites us into that rest, I think that's a rest we should want to pursue. But we have to ask the question, why did God rest? Well, because the work is finished. You see, we enter rest again through a posture of faith, believing that God is on his throne and if God is on his throne, the work is done. And if we doubt that for a minute, we can look to the cross of Christ and be reminded that God has finished the work, that that's the message of the gospel that we believe, right? That we have sinned against God, that we have rebelled against him, that every one of us is by nature children of wrath. We deserve hell and death for eternity because of our sin. But God loves us so much that he sent Jesus who came and lived the perfect life that we should have lived. He died the death that we deserved. And as he died, he himself declared, it is finished. It is done. He was crucified, buried. Three days later, he rose from the grave. And he walked out of that grave with power, with victory over sin, death, and hell. He has accomplished all the things that you and I cannot accomplish. And he sat down at the right hand of the Father. If the work is done, if God can rest, then surely we can too. We've got to get to the place, brothers and sisters, where we genuinely believe that there is a God on his throne and we are not him. And this world doesn't keep spinning because you don't stop working. And we are missing a gift that God has given for the good of our souls when we refuse to enter in to rest. Let me leave you with this passage of scripture. I wanted to work it in. I didn't really know how to do it. And so I just threw it at the end. But in Jeremiah 6, 16, God, see, this, is, this has apparently been a perpetual problem for the people of God. It wasn't just Israel. People in Jeremiah's day struggled with rest too, just like we struggle with rest today. In Jeremiah 6, 16, it says, this is what the Lord says. Stand by the roadways and look. Ask about the ancient paths. Which is the way to what is good? Take it and find rest. We have example after example after example when we look at the ancient paths that doing it our way and our own strength, it never ends well. Disbelief and disobedience leads 
to a failure to rest. But we look back on those ancient paths and we see that God has given a better way, a way that is good. And it's in that way that we can rest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I pray that you would give us grace to rest in you. God, that we would, we would believe that you are God all by yourself. That we would stop trying to play God. But that we would take time to stop work, to delight in the gifts that you have given us, to think about you, to enjoy you. I pray that you would give us a faith that would allow us to enter this rest. And God, it's a faith that only you, you can give by your, by your Spirit's power. Help us to lean into you, Lord, especially when we're in the wilderness. Not to think that we got to get ourselves out and we got to figure it out, but that we trust that you are on your throne. If we are in a season of drought and of pain and of struggle, it's not because you are gone. It's because you're doing something. And I pray that even in those moments, we would find rest for our souls. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.